Hi, this is Jackie Phillips. Hi, this is Sifa Romaine. Welcome to Reset. On Power 91.1 FM WTYJ. Reset because you, you deserve, deserve it. Good evening. Welcome to Reset. I'm so excited to have this guest on tonight. How are you, Sifu? I'm great, Jackie. How are you? Oh, good, thank you. Thank you. You look amazing, by the way. Thank you. Straight hair. Thank you. Wow. Change it up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're both in black today. I know. Well, we have a snowstorm coming, so <laughs> it's a little depressing. <laughs> but we're going to cheer up all of our viewers. We are. We, we are. have an amazing guest. I know we do. I'm so excited. Want to talk about her a little? Mildred Muhammad. I'm going to let you do it. All right. Yeah. She's a globally awarded keynote speaker, speaker for the U.S. State Department. She is a certified consultant with the Office on Victims of Crime, CNN contributor, domestic abuse survivor, humanitarian, certified domestic violence advocate, trainer, educator, and author, and tonight we are celebrating her new book, which I'm so excited about. It's called yeah. I'm Still Standing. I love that. I love I that know. title. I right? love it too. So, I feel like we all feel that way sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like I'm still standing. Yeah. Here, here I go. A heart of a champion for sure. Totally. Yeah. And it's like that saying, you know, um, be careful when, like, the devil gets scared when she wakes up and her, he, her feet hit the floor. I feel like that sometimes. I'm like, yeah, I'm still standing. Look out. Here I come, baby. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> but this book is so exciting because it is a guide to help others escape abusive relationships, mm -hmm. which is very unusual. I have not heard of any books like this. No, so this is magnificent. Yeah, it's very unique. So let's welcome your friend. Mildred Mohammed. welcome to Reset. Welcome. Welcome, Mildred. Congratulations. Today's Thank exciting. You. It's the debut. Yes, you... ma'am. Thank you so much. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to be with you tonight. Well, thank you thank for you being for here, here. Yeah. especially on the launch of your book. Absolutely. Thanks it's called I'm Still Standing, Crawling Out of the Darkness into the Light. Mm. Amazing. Wow. Well, most people have probably heard the story about the DC sniper, but I don't know how many people have heard it from, you know, your side of it. Right. You know, somebody who experienced it in a whole other way from the people okay. running outside looking in and watching and so on and so forth. Correct. So can you please, would you be willing to share your story from your eyes, through your eyes, so we can all benefit from that? Okay. Well, my story is that the relationship that John and I had was abusive. There are different types of abuse. We call it domestic violence to put everything under one umbrella, but there's domestic abuse and there's domestic violence. So domestic abuse is verbal, psychological, economic, spiritual, and stalking, whereas domestic violence is a physical assault, a slapping, hitting, spitting, mutilation, ultimately death. So John never hit me, but the way that he treated me felt like he could have. And that's why 80% of victims 
do not have physical scars to prove that they are. So it's difficult to try to articulate to someone who has not been in that situation to fully understand that just because I wasn't physically assaulted does not mean that I was not a victim. So when the shooting started, many people and law enforcement wanted everyone to look for two Caucasians in a white box truck. Um, they, were, they were not sure of who they were or why everything was happening. And October the 23rd is when ATF and the FBI knocked on my door, took me and my children, my sister, brother-in-law into protective custody. And that is when they told me that I was the intended target. The theory was he was killing innocent people to cover up my murder so that he could come in and get custody of our children. So that is what all of that was about. How did he, why did he believe that that would work? Like, were you driving on the road? Did he think like? No. I was, we were in Washington state. I asked him for a divorce because he was having multiple affairs. He moved out of the house, but he still had a key. So he would come in in the middle of the night, walk into the room. I would open my eye to a slither to watch him. He walked from one end of the bed to the other, lean over to listen to me breathe, stand up and leave out of the house. He did that three times. The third time our daughter woke up and he left. I had the locks changed. He changed my phone number four times. He had other people coming by to check on me. And at the same time, those people would go back and tell him what I was doing. When I would not come back to him, that is when he took our children out of the country for 18 months. I tried to get help from the people around me, but he had gotten to them and told them that I would speak badly about him and not to believe me. So their responses were, at least you just get to cook for one. I, Snap I, out of it. I, get I, back to work. Well, that was an 18-month process. And how I was able to find out where they were, John was in Washington State. He went to social services, applied for food stamps and cash. He had to give them our children's real names. They did a cross check and found that their names were already in the system for being taken. They told him that he needed to come back the following day because he had been approved for food stamps and cash. That social worker called the police and said, we got a problem. So they called him in and while they were calling him in, they, took, they went to the school, picked up my children. Then I had to fly back to Washington State for an emergency custody hearing. He tried to attack me in the courthouse. We flew out that night, came back to BWI, and we went underground. Didn't go anywhere. I didn't go anywhere. And then the following year, that was in 2001, so in 2002, October, September, October is when the shootings began. Why didn't they arrest him when they had the chance? 
because they called it custodial interference. But wasn't it kidnapping? They said you can't kidnap your own children. Even though we didn't have a parenting plan, they said that he had just as much a right to the children as I did. And so they didn't do anything. And, and isn't that with the, the uh, what is that called? Well, even with domestic violence laws, yeah. had you? It's a different. It's a different. It's a different court. Family court is different from other courts. So if it, if you had taken my children, then it would be kidnapping. Kidnapping. But if a parent takes it, then the children it's just custodial interference, and they won't do anything about it unless there's a. Um, physical evidence to prove that they may harm the child. And do you think that this happens sometimes because some people make false accusations when going through divorces of abuse, so therefore they keep it separate, so then this way there's a fair trial on both ends? The family court system is broken, unfortunately. Yeah. And so that little window of opportunity, that's what I call it, where we have to go to court in order to establish who gets custody of the children. Most times we're trying to work things out ourselves because there's a trust factor there. You can mm -hmm. keep it this weekend. I keep them that weekend until we go to court. But that little window is when children are taken by one parent. And then the law is, you know, uh, what is it, um, possession? Of whoever is in possession is keeps it. That's it. And had you pressed charges against him for domestic abuse prior to your children being kidnapped? I had a restraining order. You did. I did. I had a restraining. I had a lifetime restraining order because he said, "You have become my enemy, and as my enemy, I will kill you." The judge looked at my paperwork and told me, "You need to get away from this guy." I said, "Your Honor, I'm really trying to do that." And that's when he gave me a lifetime restraining order. But we still had visitation included in that. They don't want to strip the parent just because you have a restraining order. So we had to set it up where someone would come and pick up the children, take them to him, and then bring them back to me. Like a mediator. Right. But that second time he came back, didn't have the children. And that's when he said you needed to call John. So I'm trying to call him. And back then we had pagers. We didn't have cell phones like we do now. And so at 11.35 p.m. he called and said, we're in route from Seattle. We'd be there shortly. But he should have been at a Walmart, like right across the street. That wasn't the case. But they got on the plane that night and went to Antigua. Oh, wow. my goodness. Completely out of the country. And again, he the people He's he comes upset. back, goes up to Washington State. Okay. Lives in a shelter. And brings the kids with him. Right, under assumed names. Because he ran out of money, I'm assuming, in Antigua. So he had to come back to the States. Probably. Well, he was going to be arrested in Antigua because he was making false documents, birth certificates, um, airline tickets, and passports, and selling them to the citizens for $3,000 a person. Then he'd bring them to the United States and say, welcome to America, and then go back and get more people. I know this sounds like a movie, right? Oh my goodness. <laughs> so they arrested him, put him in jail. He broke out, 
<laughs> got the children, came back to the United States, landed in Florida, left Lee in Florida, went up to Bellingham, Washington, until we found out where they were. What's somebody... Washington? I'm sorry. Washington, <laughs> Washington State. Yeah, but why Washington State? Out of anywhere you could go, why not stay in Florida? Because he had um, we had friends there. That's where oh. that's where we were living. Okay, you know, so if he, if, <laughs> of all the places to go. Okay. This is my question. Sorry, Sue, like, who's helping him? Yeah, who is who's helping him? him? How do you break out of jail? Who's doing this with him? That he had people helping him. That's why most people want to call him a monster. And I say that one pe people want to call him a monster. Other people call him a hero. So oh, there were yeah. people actually helping him to do all the things that he did. When he took the children, somebody gave him $5,000 because he convinced them that I wasn't a good mother and he needed to get them away from me so that they would be okay. He's a master manipulator. Yes, he was. And did he use his veteran status as well to manipulate you? Nope. Just I, I, after that, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. I have something else. No, he didn't. He was very char char charismatic. He was the one out in the community I wasn't, so people knew him. Knew him. They trusted him, and they felt that he would tell them the truth. Well, that was also part of his abuse. He was just right. completely alienated you from anyone and right. any that could ever help you too. Right. So he could like paint you as a monster and absolutely. Sure, yeah. And they believed him. Now, do you believe as a veteran, he probably learned some very good mind tools? Yes. He, he used those to mm -hmm. help people believe his story and then he manipulated them. Right, because he didn't have the training for psychological warfare. He yes. did have that training. Yes, I figured that. Yes, he did. He could he could read the room and tell you exactly what people were going to say. He said, "Watch I watch I say this, and they're going to respond this way." And they did exactly that. Wow. So, how did he get? Two questions. How did he get caught? Mm -hmm. And once he got caught, and people found out that was your husband, how did they treat you? Well, he got caught because they were at a rest stop and the radio announcer put out the license plate number. A truck driver saw that, blocked the exit and called the police. And they came in and took him and Lee out of the car and put him into uh, custody. When they found out that I was his ex-wife, because we were divorced in October of 2000. So 2002, people were assuming that we were married. But when they found out, they said, well, if you would have stayed with him, he just would have killed you. Oh, my. You would have stayed on the West Coast. The people on the East Coast would still be alive. How dare you call you and your children victims when none of you were hurt or killed? And how dare you bring this drama into this quiet community? That's what I got. Were these people your friends? No, they were, no. Neighbors? Neighbors? Everybody. I was at the store and they would come up and tell me that. Aren't you that 
boys asked, why, what you doing here? I would just leave. I had, I would dress in a disguise to go to the store. I dressed in however way I could to just go out. But somebody always recognized me. And so I isolated myself. And that's what I'm still standing is about. I isolated myself. I tried to get counseling for me and my children, but unfortunately it was a high profile case and everybody was trying to be famous. Mm -hmm. So I went to the library, I got a book on counseling and I learned how to counsel me and my children myself. So I helped them to learn how to compartmentalize their emotions, to identify them. We looked them up in a dictionary so they would get a thorough understanding of the emotion that they're experiencing. Then we would write it down on paper because we are a visual people. If I don't see my pain, then my pain does not exist. So once we were able to do that, then we went about the, the job of breaking that pain down to the least common denominator, taking the emotional charge out of it, and then deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's how we were able to move forward. Deal with the facts. Right, just the facts. I just you to say, just the facts. I don't want any emotions in this. <laughs> and that's how we were able to get through that. So the first thing they wanted to do was watch home movies. And for me to narrate what their dad was going through, I said, y'all really need to do this for real though? I mean, is, is there any other way we can? <laughs> no, mom, we want to watch the movies. Okay, so I had to take all my stuff. I'm sorry? Because they're trying to understand who he was. They wanted to remember who he was to them. So they needed to reconnect emotionally to the dad that they remembered and then to bring them up to date to where he was at that point. So what was the dad like that they remembered? Oh, he was, he was, and he was an engaged father. So we would go to parks. He would wrestle with them on the floor. He would read to them at night. He would dance with them. He would surprise them. He was their dad. Wow. But when he took them, he told them that mommy's coming. We're going on vacation. So they believed him. I mean, they were six, seven, six, seven, and nine when he took them. Oh, yeah. so why wouldn't they believe dad? First. You know? So, you're not. You're too young to question at that point. And he's a right. good dad. Yeah, and he's, and a, he's good a good dad. dad. A good dad. He's always been there. He makes you laugh. He's playing with you. All of that. When was the moment that you realized you were in an abusive relationship? Do you remember that first moment where you were like, "This is I, not right." I was watching TV, and. Um, Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence was running PSAs about what an abusive relationship looks like. And as I was sitting at the table watching this, it was just me watching this commercial, I said, well, wait a minute. <laughs> That's, they're describing my situation, right? They had a number, I called the number and they asked me to come in. I said, no, I'm not coming in. I remember vividly calling again. I was laying on the bed. I had my children were sleeping around me and I was on the phone crying. And they said, you have to come in. I said, I'm not coming in. 
coming. Not to upset you. I'm not going to get upset. <laughs> Just for our audience members, mm -hmm. what was maybe the one word that hit you that day where you were like, yes, in your spirit, you knew? Was it isolation? Was it because I feel that there are things about domestic abuse, like you mentioned the word that you're spiritually abused. I've not heard that often when you talk about domestic abuse or domestic violence. And it's interesting because in my book, Reset, I talk about spiritual weight loss. And it is so important to talk about the abuse of the spirit and the weight that we hold because I do believe the only way to be free is to free our spirit first. You know, we have to shed that weight. We have to shed that trauma, the pain, the hurt in order to start healing. Mm -hmm. So for our audience, what would be one or two words that you heard from that PSA where you were like, oh my goodness, that's me. Because you weren't being hit. So it wasn't no. obvious. No, you weren't being pushed around, you know, it, it was, was um, walking on eggshells, mm -hmm. um, not being free to express yourself. Because when I did that, he would take what I say, said, turn it around and make it appear that I didn't know what I was talking about. Yeah. So I doubt myself. Well, maybe I didn't say that. Well, you know, maybe I, maybe I am overreacting. Maybe I'm, you know, I'm, it, it was bad. And then you would apologize for it. No, I didn't. I just, I didn't, I don't remember apologizing. I just kept it to myself. I yeah. learned early on not to give him my emotions because oh. he would take them and um, dismiss them. Because he said, for him, it was all a point of mind over matter. I said, but what does that mean? He said, I don't mind because you don't matter. <gasps> How old were you when you got into this relationship? I was 27. You were young. And had you ever known any other relationships like this prior to meeting him? Had you ever no. been exposed to anything like this? No. Did but he wasn't, it wasn't until he came from Desert Storm that that type of behavior began. Oh. Prior to that, like I said, like he was engaged with his children. He was, we were having fun. We were going places. I mean, we, he was great. He was great. He came back from Desert Storm. He was the opposite. He Even with the kids? When he came, when he, before he left, when he came back, he was silent. We talked about everything before he left. He wanted me to know what he was thinking and how we were going to make things happen. Shut down when he came, when he came back total opposite so I, I so the person that i that left never came back was he opposite with the kids as well no no he's he maintained who he was with the kids with them yes that's very interesting, interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so he knew what he was doing absolutely that's why i say <laughs> abusers are not mentally ill they know exactly what they're doing there that there is a, Je a dr jekyll and mr hyde syndrome because what he would show other people was the man that left to go to saudi and the, the when we got home that person was gone 
So do you think you fell in love with an imposter and that imposter was always the guy that came home? Or do you think that? I think that the, I believe that the imposter was always there huh. because this, there's no, the, um, who we are is who we are. Yeah. So it's time and circumstances will bring out who we really are. So I believe the imposter was there. He just became full-blown when he came back from Saudi. I guess he, he felt more comfortable to come out now. And so that's what happened. And he was fed a lot of things of right. trauma probably over there. And then he mm -hmm. felt safe to take his imposter mask off. Right. he had an excuse now, right? Right. Because he, because exactly. No, you're right. No, no. He had an excuse. He had, he, um, I love our veterans. I don't mean it. Right. No, no, no. And 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 just to oh. just to say this, PTSD. He was diagnosed with PTSD. Yeah. But just because you're diagnosed with that does not mean you commit a criminal act. So him having PTSD was not the reason why yeah. he did what he did. He took his military career, brought it into the civilian sector, and carried out those acts. Because in his 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 career was go into enemy territory to find bridges and roads, blow them up, leave quietly. So mm -hmm. I was the target. He found other people around to disguise that. And when he shot them, he drove away quietly. That's why we were looking for two Caucasians in white box truck when he was driving a a dark blue Caprice. Chevrolet Caprice or Impala with New Jersey plates, two black men in a car. Nobody would have thought that. Wow. So how did, I'm still stuck on the kids. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Because here he is, he's, you know, he's a great dad. He's spending time with his kids. He's like investing in them. Does he ever stop to think about the impact of his actions on his children? I'm going to say no. Because he hated me so much that he was willing to put them in harm's way. He took them to Antigua, right? And when I went to a speaking engagement in the Virgin Islands, and they told me that Mildred, Antigua is still, has not come up to date. Where he had them was in the outskirts. So they were in huts. They, when they went to the bathroom, they had to go in the woods and oh. wipe themselves with leaves. Oh my they had to push away the worms in the water oh. to take a bath. So he really put them in harm's way. When I found that out, I cried all the way home. And the first person I saw was my daughter. And I went up to her crying and said, honey, I'm so sorry. And I said, mom, what's the matter? And I, I said, I found out how you guys were living. I said, I don't know why he would do that to you. And I just cried and she put her head down and cried. I said, honey, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she called my son. He came over and he said, mom, you, it, this wasn't your fault. I said, but I, I, I got that. But he put you in harm's way. He hated me so much. He put you in harm's way. Then he said, mom. Um, we lost hope because whatever you advanced to be anything else, we thought we were lost. That's crazy. 
Wow. It took me a day. Say, I know you're going to. So now he's counseling me. You tell us. So go what you have to do. And then once you're done, we got to keep it moving because that's what you taught us, right? So go through your pain, recognize your pain so we can keep it moving. I said, don't give me my words. Wow. <laughs> They're so resilient. So now, so, so now I'm, I'm still like. It's okay. Go ahead. You know, <laughs> so here you are. You're still standing. And Correct. what is the message? I mean, what is the real message you want to drive home to the readers of your book? For people who hear this or watch this interview, it brings up a lot of questions. A lot of questions. But what is, the, what is your main purpose, message in writing this What's book? What's the essence, the vein, like the heartbeat of this book? I think that's the heart, right? The heartbeat of this book is that with everything that I went through, with all the pain, the venom that was spewed at me and my children, isolation, guilt, with all of that, you can get through it, regardless of what it is, how it is, put it on paper, understand what you're going through. When people say you will never heal, if you believe that, then you never will. You have to be careful of the words that you speak over yourself. Don't speak words of defeat, mm -hmm. but speak words of encouragement. Instead of saying, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this, say, I will get out of this, or say, I am out of this, which will propel you to keep moving. Don't stand still. Keep moving that's why it's crawling out of the darkness into the light because you got to crawl out of that you're not going to run you got to crawl there from crawling you walk just like a baby there from walking from crawling you stand there from standing you can run and so that's where we are now we're, we're saying, standing we're strong there's a saying we have in tai chi you know don't be afraid of moving forward slowly only afraid of standing still absolutely yeah yeah I was thinking too, you have to have the heart of a champion. You, you know, gotta you speaking those words, you have to speak like a heart of with the heart of a champion. So right. well, you have to speak it speak it into existence as if yeah. it were so. Even if you don't feel it, speak it. Even if you don't know it, speak it. Because when you mm -hmm. speak it and you tell the universe, everything that you need will be brought unto you. And everything you need is already inside of you. You just gotta pull it out. And pain pulls out purpose. I just made that up. I need to write that down. Pain. <laughs> well, we I love something it. like that in your book, right? Yeah. <laughs> pain pulls out purpose, and that's what we have to do. So what? And even for the bystanders, for the bystanders, you have people who who know someone who is a victim of domestic violence because it's an epidemic now. Everybody knows somebody who's in it, whether it's a verbal assault. If it's stalking or if um, children have been taken, we all know somebody. Mm. We all know somebody. So this is what I say to them because you say, well, you know, I don't know um, what to do. So the first thing you need to do is check your emotions. You have to set your own boundaries. You have to decide what you will do, what you won't do, and what you can't do. Mm. Once you figure that out, then you can go to that person. Take them to lunch, not dinner. 
because their time is checked. So you're being considerate and you're also making sure that they're not, they don't feel threatened or I, I need to hurry up and leave. Lunch is lunch, yeah. right? So don't ask them, what's going on? You already know what's going on and you wasting time. Don't bring a frivolous conversation. Your time is limited. It's limited to an hour, right? So you ask this question because now you have your boundaries in check. What you will do, what you won't do, and what you can't do. You ask, how can I help you? Now that person may take a seat back for a minute and look at you and wonder, why are you asking me that question? Because no one ever asks the victim, what do you want? How can I help you? What do we do? We say, if I was you, I'd leave. If I was you, I'd do yeah. this and that. But you don't understand that you're sounding just like the abuser. You don't want to come off like that. So when you ask that question, what you're doing is you're actually empowering the victim to tell you what they need. You're giving them their power back. So if they don't say anything, don't give them a suggestion, mm -hmm. right? You just say, look, when you're ready, I'm here. Just let me know what you need. Now, in your deciding what you will do, won't do what you want to do, and what you can't do, you have to decide, for example, are you going to give her money if they ask? And if so, how much? Can they come and stay with you? If not, what are you going to do? Are you going to give them resources? Because you know your limits, and I can't go past this right here. So are you going to have a list of resources available to give them? Those are the things you need to think about at that point. Now, once that person calls you, back and say, I'm ready to do this, then you know what you can do, what you won't do. Well, I have a question. Okay. I think one thing that we forget to take into consideration that's so important, I'd say it's the most important umbrella over all this, is these relationships you know, you're married to this person. You were in love with this person. They were your everything. And we just dismiss the oh, fact wow. that they're still in love with their abuser. They're not always out of love yet. And it's almost like until nope. that scale tips a little bit, right, is the pain more mm -hmm. than the love is maybe when a person actually leaves. I mean, unless, of course, you're beaten so bad. And I mean, those are those special circumstances. But we do need to be considerate of the love factor because no one talks about that. Well, I didn't, this is, and this is going to sound crazy. It I wasn't, until, crazy, it wasn't until, it wasn't until I was in the shelter. I had to change my name, had to change my clothes and go into hiding. I was watching TV in the shelter and I saw this picture of a family. And that's when it clicked, John doesn't love me anymore. That's when it clicked. <laughs> then, in the shelter, children gone, running for my life, then it clicked. Wow. And you know what's interesting of what you just said? John doesn't love me anymore. Right. 
say, I don't love John anymore. No, right. So how long until it because was, I, still I don't did. love John anymore? Well, it doesn't, that, for me, it wasn't about me loving him. It was about him loving me. Mm -hmm. And since he didn't love me anymore, now I got to act. I need to go ahead and do what I need to do. So there has to be an emotional detachment before you can go ahead and do the things that you need to do to save your life or to leave. As long as that emotional attachment is there, I'm not going anywhere. It's, and then there's the age factor. Can't forget about that. Because if you're in your 50s and your 60s, you're not leaving. So what, what, where are you going? Yeah. Although people around you know you're being beaten, nobody's stepping up and asking you, how can I help you? They're just waiting. Don't know what they're waiting for, for to, to step in to help you. So there's that age factor. There's the economic factor with the money. There's the, uh, the if the person is famous or well-known, we don't want to bring a dark cloud over them, right? If it's a, a, a spiritual leader, we don't want to bring any darkness on them because they're not going to look at the leader. They're going to look at, why are you saying that about him? That's not how he is. So you don't say anything. When was the moment that you realized if you didn't escape, you were going to die? When he said, you have become my enemy and as my enemy, I will kill you. And how long from that moment until you escaped? It was the next weekend is when he took the children. Oh, wow. So you didn't even escape. He, he did the escape. Right. It was his beginning of warfare. Right. Because he had it all planned. And the sad part, he had other people unknowing to them helping him. Wow. So I had to forgive them, even though they didn't know that he was using them. Did you ever see those people again, by the way? Did you ever meet any of them? Did you know them personally? Were they friends? I didn't know them. I didn't know them personally. And I knew that some of them was helping John to take my children. And did you see them after the fact? Have they apologized to no, you? Ever? they have not. No. No. Even knowing all right. that he did. Right. Right. I went to Tacoma and two of those friends took me out to dinner. And so while we were sitting there eating, one of them said, you know, John came by for me to pray over him because he said he was getting ready to do something. So I put my fork down because I started to get angry. And she said, um, I prayed over him. He was sweating and everything. And when he got up, he said, thank you, because he was getting ready to go do something. She said, then the next thing I knew, you called me and said, John took the children. I'm thinking to myself, but and as soon as she said that, I felt that hand go over my mouth. <laughs> I couldn't say anything. I, I, I literally tried. Couldn't say a word. She, yeah, said, she should have called you. I'm sorry? She should have called you. And said, I called her and said that John took the children. That was her moment to tell me, and yeah. she didn't. She didn't. She said, John came several times, told me the children were in Antigua, asked me, did I know where you were? I told him, John, I don't know where Mildred is. She knew where my children were. She wow. watched me suffer, wow. her and several others. There was one couple, they told me to my face, Mildred, if we knew where John and those children were, we would tell you. And the FBI told me that they were the people who had John living with them for 45 days 
with my children. And they were right down the street. Wow. Wow. That's, so, that's, that's betrayal on, on so many levels. Oh. Yeah, so many levels. And for your kids, <laughs> What happens when somebody asks them about their dad? Yeah. Talking about now or when they were small? I mean, at any point. At any point. I mean, point, it's like a yeah. very common question, it's a right? Good question. Well, we, we, we did drills. We did drills. The drill was if somebody asks you, if that's your dad, what you going to say? So the girls would look at each other with confusion. John said, that's our dad. We're going to say that's our dad. I said, but how are you going to say that? How are you going to feel if they try to make you? be responsible, and they didn't say anything. I said, okay, we are not going to take responsibility for your dad's actions. He made a conscious decision. He wasn't drunk, wasn't taking drugs. He knew exactly what he was doing. So you can say, we're sorry for your loss, but we will not take responsibility for his actions. And that is what we have stood on ever since. So when they ask that is my dad, but we we don't go announce, oh, you know, my dad is the DC sniper. You no. know, my ex husband yeah. was this, right? People recognize it. It's, I know you're from somewhere. I say, really? Hmm. Hmm. Okay. You're not going to tell me, you know, when you figure it out, <laughs> let <Yeah>. me know. <laughs> you know what a question is that I'm curious about is, you know, once you were dealing with all this you know were, were you always a stay-at-home wife and mother we had our own business we had our own business it was a mobile auto repair service i ran the business he was the mechanic okay so he was always out i was always in the office that's how that was so how did you survive after there was no income coming in were you able to replace him as, you know, get other mechanics? Did you go into another business? I went, I went to sell vacuum cleaners door to door. <clears throat> I um, was trying to find work, but that is when I was signing for a package for my mother on Mother's Day and I passed out. They had to put me in the hospital because um, um, I lost three units of blood and I needed to have a blood transfusion. And right after that is when my sister came from Maryland to get my mother. And that's when they put me in the shelter. So that's how that went. Wow. I always wonder that. How, how do people survive? Because that is such a hard thing to economic. It is. But some, people, some women are able to continue to work mm -hmm. under that type of stress. And that's amazing. Yes. Some, and, but some whose income is based upon the abuser, yes. that's a very difficult thing to do because he controls the money. And whoever controls the money controls the house. Yes. Mm -hmm. wow. so, so it's either you go into a shelter, um, you try to go live with somebody, or ultimately you go homeless. And there are many homeless mothers and children that's out on the street because of domestic violence. And we don't talk about that either. No, we never talk about that. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about that. This is the ultimate reset story. Absolutely. I mean, just getting your life back on track and doing everything you're doing. 
why do the books though? Why go through the pain of really? putting it out there all over again? And, you know, I'm sure some people, I don't know, are they nice to you or do they, what do they say? They are now. <laughs> curious. They are now. <laughs> you know. Before, you know, when I wrote Scared Silent and the books came in the mail, I remember holding my book, opening the box and holding my book like this. My daughter said, why are you holding your book? And I said, I don't want nobody to read it for me. <laughs> she Aww. said, it's kind of late now, mom. It's kind of late. <laughs> so I, I had to gear up for the criticism because it was a lot. You know, you're capitalizing off of, off of this with him. You really wasn't abused. The people in this area still don't believe, some of them don't believe that me and my children were abused. And, it, and his family um, felt that it was my fault that he was executed. Um, mm. There were other people that felt that I should have done more to help him because I was married to him, but you know, he's a grown man. He can make his own decisions. I'm not his mother. Um, they don't know that we were divorced for two years um, when he decided to put all of this together. So there was a lot of crit criticism and I realized what I needed to do was put a shield on me, like water off a duck. Yeah. Right. And so when people said something to me, I did not get into a debate with them about John. I'm not going to debate with you about what happened to me, but I'm not going to allow you to minimize what happened to me. So I don't compare my story to other people. My pain is my pain. What I went through was me. And I encourage other people not to compare their pain with mine, because at that moment, yours was the most traumatic experience you ever went through. There's no way you can compare that to anybody else's. And so I told my children that everybody is entitled to their opinion. Everybody is entitled to their feelings. Doesn't mean that I have to accept or internalize how you feel. Those are yours. And I'm going to leave them right there in front of my force shield. That's yours. And that's how we made it through that. So if somebody else's opinion is more important than my own about me, that's a problem. My, my opinion about myself is higher than your opinion of me. So I had to get to a point to where what you say about me is none of my business. And how you say it, I don't care. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't care. Because this everybody has their own race to, to run. We're all here for a purpose. And once you figure out what your purpose is and why you're here, then no one can take you off of your purpose. I was speaking at an event and to speak to the spiritual part for you. Mm -hmm. And this was stadium seating in this auditorium. We're at the bottom. Wow. You're speaking, right? It's elderly black woman asked me to come over. She was on canes and she said, I'm so proud of you. I said, thank you. She said, you, you're speaking for us. I said, who are the us? She said, those of us who don't have physical scars. She said, I want you to do me a favor. I said, what's that? She said, I want you to continue to speak regardless of whom or what. Will you promise me you would do that? I said, yes, ma'am. Someone tapped me on my shoulder. I turned to shake their hands. When I turned back to her, she was gone. 
No way she yeah. walked up those stairs so. <laughs> <Okay>. with, that, <laughs> with that cane. No way. Yeah. I went yeah. all through that auditorium looking for her. <laughs> she was not there. So that's why I made a promise that I would keep doing this regardless of whom or what. So no one can take me off my purpose. Wow. Some people want me to go away. I'm not going away. Y'all just got to get used to me. That's it. Is you said, I'm not going away. I'm coming stronger. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I'm still That's standing. Right. So I am not. I am completely healed from this. I tackled all of my triggers. I tackled all of my nightmares. I don't have any residue. I can talk about my story, drop the mic, and keep it moving. <laughs> <laughs> I always say that too. Keep it moving. Oh, keep God. it moving. That's what I tell them. We gotta keep it moving. We can't be yeah. we can't be standing here trying to wait for dodging. No, we gotta go. We gotta go. We gotta keep going. And whatever you're feeling, whatever that pain is, we're gonna use that pain to propel us farther so we can get there. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do. What are three tips you would give somebody if they were going through a reset? First tip, because in resets, we cry. Mm-hmm. Know what every tear means. Ooh. Why is that tear dropping? That's if you good. can't identify the pain with that tear, then you're going to keep crying that mm-hmm. same tear. See? So if you figure what that is, put it on paper. Now you can see what it is, right? Look it up in the dictionary. Figure out which definition resonates with your spirit because that's the one that you're going through. Because you can't, you can't move forward if you don't know what you're going through. You don't know what that is. You've got to identify it and you've got to have a comprehensive knowledge of exactly what that pain is. Guilt, shame, isolation, whatever. Once you figure it out, you can deal with it. You can get over it. So know why every tear, what's the meaning of every tear that falls from your eyes. And then when you do cry, number two, when you do cry, cry until you can't cry anymore. I never tell a person, oh, don't cry because now you're stunting their growth. You're keeping them from healing. So cry, cry as much as you need to, but just understand I'm crying because, why are you crying? I'm crying because I couldn't get my way. I'm crying because this person won't leave me alone. I'm crying because I didn't get that promotion. I'm crying because my children will not behave. Whatever it is, you got to identify those tears, and then you can move from them. Number three, um, there's always, um, I'm a big advocate of journaling. I really am. Because I know that we're supposed to find one person to tell our deepest secrets to, which will release us from that pain that we're in. Sometimes we don't have that trusted friend. Sometimes we don't know what to do. I have, here's my journal. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Here's my journal. This is is my one trusted friend. It's the journal. The journal. The journal doesn't talk back. The journal won't tell other people my deepest secrets. I can keep them with me. I can read over them to see how I've grown. 
to then once when I read, I said, man, I was going through all of that. Jeez, but it's out of my head. It's out of my head and it's clear. I remember walking through the shelter. I walked doing this with my for on my forehead. <laughs> no, why are you doing it? I said, because I got so much stuff that's coming. I'm trying to find some space oh, in my brain <laughs> that will make yeah. it up. So I was, <laughs> that's what I literally, that's what I would walk through the shelter doing. So this is my trusted friend. I journal, I, but I'm got to be specific with your journaling. Are you going to journal about the world or are you going to journal about your emotions? I journaled about my emotions. I, and my pain was like an onion. I needed to get to the core. So I had to pull back each layer mm -hmm. and deal with the pain in that layer. Once I was done with that pain, then I went to the next layer until I got to the core. And once I got to the core, I found out that it wasn't even that much. I just let stuff pile up on it, never really dealing with the core of what was going on with me. What are some tips that you would give someone who's in an abusive relationship to take right now today, in this moment, listening to this show? You're looking for the representative and the person is not there. You have to accept that the person before you is the person, is who that person really is. And then you have to decide how you're going to move about. If you're not sure that you're in an abusive relationship or you need to see your relationship clearer than what it is. So get a sheet of paper, draw a line down the middle, one side pros, the other side cons. You're doing this about the relationship, not the person, because we're all flawed. We all have our issues, but it's about the relationship. You separate your emotions from the actual facts. So as you're writing down these pros and cons, you don't make excuses for the cons. You don't say, well, he or she was feeling this way and that's why they did that. No, you don't do that because you're not in that person's head. You write down the facts. Once you get to the end, if there are more pros than cons, then read over the cons and see if that's something you can work with in order to make the relationship better. However, if the cons outweigh the pros, you have a decision to make. You have to decide if you're going to stay, if you're going to leave, how you're going to leave, when you're going to leave, who you're going to tell, how you're going to go about that. I have a comprehensive safety plan. It's called Planning My Escape. It's eight steps. Number eight means transformation. So you're transforming from a victim to a survivor when you fill out this safety plan. The eighth step are items that you should take with you. And the ones that are checked are the ones you need immediately to start your life over. Once you decide you're going to leave, then you have to tell one trusted friend, not the journal, but one trusted friend. It can only be one because you don't know who your abuser knows. And if you tell more than that one person, it'll get back to your abuser and all your plan will be for nothing. Don't put it on social media. Don't put it on Facebook, yeah. all these other places. I'm getting ready to leave because yeah. this is what's going to happen. And I'm so tired of him. <laughs> I'm going to go see a divorce attorney and all that. 
because even though that your abuser may not have accesses to your pages, other people do. And they will go back and tell your yeah. abuser. So you have the element of surprise. Keep it. Then when you leave, you're gone. So that is what I would advise in trying to leave an abusive relationship. you got to be strategic because nowadays people don't have a high value for life. They kill you for anything now. So 70, up to 75% of women who try to leave, and that's why you have to be strategic. Well, these are amazing tips, and I know that these tips of how to escape are in your book. Where yes, can they find your new book, I'm Still Standing? Well, they can get it on Amazon now. It is on Kindle. However, if you want an autograph copy. If they want an autograph copy, where should they go? www.mildredmohammed.com. Okay. So Mildred, what do we have to look forward to coming up for this year? We're just in the beginning of 2017. Are you doing a book tour? Speaking engagements, what, what all do you have going on? I am doing a book tour. Well, I'm speaking in South Carolina in April. Amazing. To my story, and I've gotten great reviews from the military bases. I have those coins that they give out to oh. distinguished speakers, as they call me, and I I, I just, I have a special um, place in my heart for the soldiers because when they go to a war zone and they come home, they're trying to figure out if they still fit in their home because they've been gone so long yeah. and the spouse, children have gone on, you know, with their life without yeah. him or her. And so it's trying to create a liaison to bring them back into the fold so that they can feel a part of the family. So I really work harder to try to help them. I remember speaking at one military base and after I finished my story, I'm shaking hands with everybody because you know, 22 soldiers a day commit suicide. And people don't know that. 22 soldiers. So, man, and he said, um, Ms. Muhammad, thank you so much for sharing your story. He said, but I'm at ground zero. And when I leave out of here, I'm trying. I turn on to his today. Today, said, down. And he said, yes, you can. I said, but can you have a seat, though, until I do that? And I'm going to be watching you. He said, before he but he wanted somebody to, to hear him. I went and told the commander. They said that uh, they knew about it, but they didn't know he was thinking of killing himself. And there were counselors in the audience. So they were able to help him right away. And he's doing much better now. So when people are coming to us in pain, we have to hear them. Even when they, they don't say the words we think they should say, 
to get attention. Sometimes it could just be a simple word or I'm going outside or something like that. But if it's the way they say it. And they say things like that to see if we're listening. So we have to be proactive in listening to people when they're talking to us. There's so many people in pain. I think the greatest gift we can give someone, like the greatest gift of all, I mean, obviously besides love and kindness, is just to listen. Like sometimes that's all people need is someone to listen to them. That's it. Just listen. Just listen. Yeah. You are, my goodness, (laughs) I don't even have words. You're just such an inspiration. You're a trailblazer. You're a blessing to so many people. You're an encourager. You're a warrior. I mean, God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Because I, I do believe when people open those pages, they just, their freedom is flying out by reading right. your story because yes, it takes such courage to write it. And you were under such just terrible, like, circumstances. Yes. And just the way sure. people treated you. And they did. I just, I just seek freedom for every single person that buys your book that as they read your story, they take their steps to freedom too. So thank you for having the courage to write your beautiful mm-hmm. books. And one of, I have a, a journal that I start the sentence, but you finish it because I'm trying to tap into that particular emotion that you may have been afraid to tell someone else. But it's also a way because it's 62 statements and six and two is eight and number eight means transformation. Cause you know, I always have a reason for doing what I do, and but it's it also is. a way <laughs> for you to put those pages together to write your own book. Oh, you know? so, so once, cause once you start writing this, this, these journals are just to get you to writing. And once you start writing, then you feel the need. Sometimes I feel my journal calling and say, come on, you need to write something because you know you're going through something. Come on, write it down so we can get to, the, to the, the core of what it is. And I've had several people to say that's how they were able to write their book because they filled in those pages. They were able to get out exactly how they were feeling and they were able to deal with it. And we all have a book inside of us. We all do. Yes, we do. We're all, you know, we have this unique divine purpose here on this earth mm-hmm. and we should share it. Because you, right. you, you never, never know, know who you're going to help. You're going to help. Exactly. You never know who's sitting in that audience yeah. to hear what you're saying. Yeah. I feel like that a lot on this show when we say something, I'm like, I know that was for someone. I don't know who it was for, but mm-hmm. definitely it was for someone. Absolutely. Write in or call mm-hmm. us or tell us that they, yeah. something that we shared on the show really inspired them. Yes. Well, Mildred, we'd love to have you back. I would love to come back. Because I think we could have talked to you for like three more hours. <laughs> I have like all these questions I did ask you. <laughs> oh, well, that's good, I guess. Yeah. For the next show. For the next show, yeah. Well, thank you, Mildred, and congratulations on your book. You are the people that we have testimony to research. Thank you. 
Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. For our audience. For our audience. Don't forget. To reset. reset. Absolutely. I totally deserve it. it.